It's Friday, November 29th. From the Ryersonian, I'm Charlie Buckley. You're listening to Blue and Gold. It's been a long semester, from waves of protests here at home, to a federal election, to political unrest around the world. We've seen threats to the survival of campus press, international outcry on climate, regime change in Lebanon and Bolivia, and landmark elections in Canada, the United Kingdom, Israel, Hong Kong, and Uruguay. In this week's finale of Blue and Gold, we sit down with Ryersonian reporters to take a look back at the semester and what some of the biggest stories of the season say about the state of our school, our city, our country, and our world. This semester, campus groups in Ontario face a landscape they never had before. Students and their families deserve access to more affordable post-secondary education. That's why, for the first time in the history of Ontario, this PC government is actually lowering tuition for college and university students. Following reforms brought forward by Premier Doug Ford's Conservative government, students at post-secondary institutions were, for the first time, allowed to opt out of many ancillary student fees. These included student unions, campus helplines and food banks, news outlets and clubs. As groups here at Ryerson and at schools throughout Ontario waited on the results of the Student Choice Initiative, many couldn't help but wonder what would become of them should funding dry up. Championing the fight against Ford's cuts were the Ryerson Student Strike, Socialist Fightback, and campus newspaper The Eye Opener. Throughout the semester, plans came through for a public demonstration, and meanwhile, two local student groups, the Canadian Federation of Students and York Federation of Students, were fighting the policy in divisional court. On November 6th, close to 100 students marched from Ryerson campus to Queen's Park, carrying signs and chanting against the cutbacks, and Premier Ford in particular. The protesters shut down Young and Dundas, one of the city's busiest intersections, on their way to the legislature. Then, on November 21st, the Divisional Court reached a decision. The Student Choice Initiative was ruled unlawful, signaling a major victory for protesters. The application for judicial review was originally filed in May by the student federations and came through just a few weeks after the culmination of demonstrations here at Ryerson. As student groups celebrate and the semester comes to a close, the fate of campus funding remains to be seen. The implications of the court's decision, as well as just when they'll come into effect, are still up in the air. You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words, and yet I'm one of the lucky ones. People are suffering, people are dying, entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction and all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you? Another story that seized our attention this semester was the global climate strike. Inspired by the activism of 16-year-old Swedish student Greta Thunberg, the movement saw walkouts in cities around the world. 
Ryersonian managing editor Juliana Perkins joins us in the studio to talk about the strikes. Juliana, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So this week, as you know, we're going through the biggest stories of the semester, and I'm sure you would agree with me that we'd be remiss not to mention the climate strike. Can you give us a quick recap on what happened? Sure. So on September 20th and 27th of this year, uh, we saw some pretty large international climate strikes, mostly dominated by uh, youth protesters. And they were kind of led by Greta Thunberg. She's a Swedish uh, environmental activist. And the whole movement kind of started as something she called Fridays for Future, where back home in Sweden, she started striking every Friday, sometimes at the beginning alone. (laughs) And yeah, I guess in September, it kind of culminated in this string of international protests. Here in Toronto, we had a big march that went all the way up to Queen's Park. Montreal had the biggest one in Canada. And it was a pretty big deal. And I'm just looking at a couple of the numbers I have in front of me. There were a couple of different estimates worldwide of how many people participated. But between the 100 countries or so, it's anywhere from like 6 million to 7.5 million total participants. You know, some people are saying this is the greatest or largest or most populous climate action in history. I want to ask a little bit more. What about Thunberg herself? I think a lot of us got our first taste of the kind of influence she has when she was talking in front of the UN. 50% may be acceptable to you, but those numbers do not include tipping points, most feedback loops, additional warming hidden by toxic air pollution or the aspects of equity and climate justice. They also rely on my generation sucking hundreds of billions of tons of your CO2 out of the air with technologies that barely exist. Yeah, so I mean, she kind of started making waves within the last, I would say, two-ish years. I mean, she's been around for a while. She is only 16 years old. I think one moment where we kind of saw how dedicated she was to the climate cause was when she took a yacht a zero carbon emissions yacht instead of flying and that I think took about two weeks to cross all the way to New York City for a conference so that was a pretty big deal and I think a lot of people especially I would say people older than maybe 25 that garnered their attention uh, because it was so extreme quote unquote but I think young people have been a little bit more in tune for a while, especially because the Fridays for Future thing, I mean, has been happening in Canada. Not as big, obviously, as the September strikes. But yeah, she's fairly well known. And if you start digging into her backstory, um, a lot of people say that she's too young to lead the movement. She is only 16 years old. There's also accusations of hypocrisy and all of that. But if you really start looking into her backstory, she pretty much sticks to everything she says. She's vegan. She's made her family go vegan. She made her mother quit her, well, I'm not going to say maid, obviously, her mom had to agree to this. But uh, she made her mother quit her international opera career because it required her to fly all over the world. And so as a family, they decided that that was too many carbon emissions and that she would stop doing that. So, I mean, I think she definitely practices what she preaches. But it's also important to note that, like, she's not the first person to do this and definitely not the first young person. I mean, here in Canada, we have Autumn Pelletier. She's, like almost the same age, has also spoken at the UN, is an outspoken water protector, um, indigenous, young, female. And I think all through like most activist movements, there have been young women constantly at the forefront. So Greta Thunberg isn't the first person to do this, especially not in the climate movement, where we've seen like a lot of black and indigenous protesters kind of leading the forefront. 
Um, but she's definitely been the one to garner the most attention so far. I, I appreciate that you say attention because I want to talk a bit about the kind of social media explosion there was, especially after Thunberg's remarks at the UN. I mean, so many people were quoting it and, and, and kind of showing this verbal lashing of this collected group of world leaders. But what about here in Toronto? How did it go down right where we're sitting? I mean, Toronto, even though we're kind of like the largest city in Canada, we didn't have the largest protest. That goes to Montreal. Greta Thunberg also has protested in Montreal with those strikers. So that says something about kind of the attitude of Torontonians. Uh, at the same time, though, that's not to say there weren't any people. We had There was a massive turnout and a lot of it was young people. I would say a lot of it was high schoolers, university students, young people who are just fed up. The amount of signs, the amount of social media coverage, the amount of people who are proud to be part of those protests was quite significant, I would say. And in terms of official responses, I know there was a lot of talk about it being exactly that, a strike. And that always kind of creates some tension between people and their workplaces or their schools. Were there any notable reactions from those kinds of places? The Montreal School Board let students out of class. Uh, here in Toronto, I mean, at Ryerson particularly, there was no kind of official you-can-all-go-strike kind of mandate, especially because President Lachemi and kind of all of the executive staff basically said they don't have the authority to decide those kinds of things. But it wasn't discouraged. It was definitely on a case-by-case, student-by-student basis, though. A lot of big companies, too, also really pulled up to the plate and did some sort of action. Um, Lush, for one, the beauty brand, they shut down all of their North American stores and handed over their social media, which has millions of followers collectively, to the youth organizers so that they could use the Lush platform to spread the message. And they encouraged all of their employees to strike, which I think is a really big deal. Um, there's also a bunch of Amazon employees who basically petitioned for their right to strike and a handful of other companies as well. Usually companies that have some sort of environmental or, you know, athletic kind of outlook. Like I think Mech was one of them as well. I'm not really sure. Um, but yeah. Why do you think this story was so popular and so important this past semester? I really think this story pulled through as a popular one because it was so youth-focused. I mean, Greta Thunberg aside, the mass amount of people that went out who were young, who cared about this because it's their futures, was pretty significant. And because so many people who are younger were involved, it was just that much more important to that age group. And it got so much coverage in a way that young people actually consume. So not just standard media stuff, but there was footage of those protests all over social media and people were engaging with social media during those protests. And I think that's why it was such a big deal because it was kind of unavoidable if you're a young person and every young person uses social media. Thanks so much for joining us. No problem. It would have been possible without you. Thank you for the early mornings and the late nights. You've sacrificed a lot, taking time away from your families and friends to move Canada forward. The fact is, Canadians have passed judgment on this Liberal government. Now, not only have they lost over 20 seats, but Mr. Trudeau has also lost votes and lost support in every region of the country. And ladies and gentlemen, we knew this was never going to be easy, but nothing worth achieving ever is. Mes amis, 
Je nous trouve très fringants. Je nous trouve très vivants. Friends, throughout this campaign, I've heard a lot of stories about Canadians, from Canadians, who are struggling and just want to build a good life, but are finding it harder and harder to do so. And to those Canadians, I want to say to you this tonight. You Democrats are going to Ottawa to fight for you. Uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau remains Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Uh, Mr. Scheer remains the leader of the official opposition. Uh, the New Democrats lost a lot of seats, but they're now the fourth party, and the big winner tonight was, well, was really the Greens and the Bloc Québécois. Well, we have more than doubled our popular vote, and we tripled our seat count. The federal election was the single most reported event by the Ryersonian this semester. For weeks leading up to October 21st, the latest updates from the campaign trail were top of mind for reporters. Here on Blue and Gold, we did our best to keep up with election news, from platform announcements and campus visits to political scandal to the roster of candidates primed to battle it out in our own home riding. By the time election night finally came, the newsroom was singularly focused. Teams of reporters were dispatched to watch parties across downtown, Live updates were published as they happened on the Ryersonian website, and the broadcast team worked diligently throughout the night to keep everything running smoothly. As the results came together nationwide, the outlook for Canada's future became at once clear and very uncertain. A liberal minority with a resurging Conservative Party in Bloc Québécois, floundering NDP, and a Green Party with continuing modest gains. As the Liberals set their cabinet and the runners-up give a critical look at their own leadership, Canada transitions into a new era of government. One more sober and more jaded than the Trudeau majority that came before it. Let's turn now to the tense situation in Venezuela. In Hong Kong. In Chile. In Lebanon. Thousands of people are protesting across Egypt, calling on President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi to resign. Hundreds of activists remain under siege. After days of violent unrest on the streets of Caracas. President Sebastian Piñera is resisting calls for him to resign. At least 18 people have been killed, hundreds injured, and more than 4,000 detained since these demonstrations began. This year has seen major protests flare up around the world. From here at home to places like Lebanon, Iraq, Egypt, Chile, Venezuela, and Hong Kong. Ryersonian Editor-in-Chief Maria Saru joins us to take us through this fall's story of public action and political unrest. Maria, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So earlier this season, we sat down together and spoke at length about the political situation in Lebanon and the movement protesting against corruption. Zooming out to a global perspective, we've seen demonstrations on nearly every continent. What do you think is inspiring this? There are reasons for why protest movements are on the upswing on a more macro level. So the global economy is in a synchronized slowdown, which can be partially attributed to an increase in trade barriers and a spike in geopolitical tensions. Add to that a deterioration in manufacturing activity, um, structural forces like aging demographics, and more country-specific factors um, that are inhibiting several emerging market economies, and you get a downgrade in growth. Also, the middle class is shrinking. Um, the expenses of education, healthcare, and especially housing are rising faster than the incomes for that bracket, um, which haven't grown since the middle of the last decade. So that only contributes to a growing gap between the rich and the poor. So for countries that are at the end of their tether, all it takes is a few cents to catalyze an uprising. So in Chile, it was a fair increase of four cents for a subway ride, which was revoked, but by then it was too late. In France, fuel tax rises triggered weeks of violent protests before they were dropped from the next year's budget. 
again in Iraq, the protests erupted over the issues of unemployment, poor public services, and corruption. And in Sudan, it was the rising bread and fuel prices. And those are just a few examples. Algeria, Bolivia, Spain, the Czech Republic, Hong Kong, Russia. Those are all countries that have coped or are, are still experiencing protests now. And of course, with Hong Kong, there's the element of sovereignty on top of any sort of financial and, and kind of um, economic protests, like in, in, in so many of those places that you've just listed. I want to move back into Lebanon, where pressure from demonstrators led to the resignation of a prime minister. It seems, at least on the surface, that these protesters are kind of making progress. But what do you think? I think they're making progress in the sense that they refuse to back down. And that sends a powerful message. Um, the uprising really shows no signs of stopping, despite the country's economic paralysis, shutting businesses, uh, painful layoffs and bankruptcies, despite the central bank imposing capital controls like withdrawal limits and wire transfer caps, despite the local currency uh, weakening against the US dollar significantly, the importers of medical supplies stated recently that they're no longer able to import anything due to restrictions imposed by the banking system and clashes between security forces and protesters have really become increasingly violent. But despite that all, protesters just will not leave the streets as long as the ruling class continues to put forth names that are emblematic of a sectarian governing framework. When former finance minister Hamad um, Safadi's name came up in negotiations to be the next prime minister, thousands took to the streets of Beirut shouting, thief. Candidates that are nominated through networks of patronage and clientelism have triggered immense backlash from protesters. I think this population of protesters feels robbed and they feel like what the politicians have stolen from them is so much greater than anything they have to lose. It's interesting you mentioned kind of taking to the streets because uh, there was a Washington Post article I came across that dubbed 2019 the year of the street protester, and it's kind of been thrown around a lot in the weeks since then. What's your response to that? The expansion of democracy has really slowed internationally. So for citizens that are dealing with unresponsive governments and are really feeling the burden of economic grievances, Taking to the streets may not just feel like a last resort, it may feel like the only option. And I think that's why the Washington Post would declare this year as the year of the street protester. Is there anything else on your mind about Lebanon specifically or the trend of public action as a whole? This was you know, one of our biggest episodes of the year, talking through such an important and such a serious set of circumstances. Is there anything you'd like to share? Mm -hmm. This semester, the Ryersonian has had a lot of coverage on how global movements are being led by youth, uh, youth leaders. I think this is really interesting. A fourth of the global population is between the ages of 10 to 24, and the vast majority of that age group live in developing countries. So today's global youth are more likely to be in school than their parents were. They're more connected to the rest of the world than any generation before them. And many of them are finding themselves in no position to land a decent job at home. I think when ambition is stifled or suppressed like that, and you can't reap the fruits of your labor because of factors that feel beyond your control, that's what creates an angry and an unyielding population that's willing to do whatever it takes to get what it feels it deserves, and rightfully so. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. 
It's Blue and Gold. I'm Charlie Buckley. Here's what else we're following this week. On Ryerson campus, a new initiative to help Toronto's homeless population has arrived. A new vending machine near Ryerson's service hub has been installed, but instead of snacks and drinks, it dispenses socks. Created by Ryerson graduate Marisa Chef, the machine is designed to dispense an additional free pair of socks with every purchase. Customers are encouraged to donate the extra pair to someone in need. Chef says the initiative is inspired in part by the policy among local shelters to turn away sock donations. Putting the spares in the hands of consumers, she added, allows them to donate directly. Elsewhere in Toronto Centre, police have announced the arrest of a man who allegedly dumped buckets full of human feces on three people across the city. Samuel Opuku, age 23, was arrested near Queen Street and Spadina Avenue on Tuesday evening. Opuku has been charged with five counts of assault with a weapon and five counts of mischief interfere with property. Over the last week, the alleged attacks were the talk of the town, as university students at all of Toronto's schools feared the coming of the mysterious figure reported to have struck once at York University and twice in the University of Toronto area. Following his arrest, Opuku appeared in court on Wednesday morning. And finally, this weekend saw the 107th Grey Cup end in a win for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers with a 33-12 lead over the Hamilton Tiger Cats. The story on everyone's lips this year is Blue Bombers fan Chris Matthew, who vowed in 2001 to never wear pants again until his team took home the cup. After 18 Winnipeg winters, where average temperatures can reach the negative teens, Matthew donned long pants once again on the field in Calgary. That's all this week for Blue and Gold. For all of us here at the Ryersonian, thank you for listening. We'll be taking a break over the next month, but check back in the new year for more podcast coverage from your favorite campus paper. Blue and Gold is a production of the Ryersonian and the Ryerson School of Journalism. Our host is Karen Sandoval-Santana, executive producing by me, additional reporting by Sabrina Jonas, Juliana Perkins, and Maria Saru. Our editor-in-chief is Maria Saru, managing editor Juliana Perkins, instructors Peter Baco-George and H.G. Watson, graphics by Aria DeLima and Sophie Diego. Special thanks to Angela Glover, Lindsay Hanna, Daniela Oleru, and Gary Gould. Music this week provided by WeStar. My name is Charlie Buckley. Thanks for listening.